0: This episode is brought to you by our wonderful patrons. If you enjoy the coffee and cocktails podcast, feel free to support our show by becoming a patron for as little as one pound per month. By subscribing to our show, you get early access to ad free and bonus episodes, patron only content, workshops, panels, and much more. All you need to do is go to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast and subscribe today. Thanks for listening and on with the show. Hello and welcome to the 36th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Anne Wand. This month for our Controversies and Contraband series, we have the pleasure of talking with anthropologist Dr. Heather Monroe, who will be talking with us today about Haredi Jewish identity and her work on the ultra-Orthodox communities of New York, London, and Israel. But before we begin, I'd like to explain to our listeners that Heather and I decided to break this episode into two parts. In order to understand Heather's research on the anti-vax movement amongst the Haredi community of New York, we realized that we need to dedicate an entire episode just to Haredi identity before we dive into part two's episode on medical decision-making within the Haredi community. So with that, I'd like to say, Heather, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Anne. Pleasure. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you were having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Heather, would you like to start?
1: I am very boring. I'm having water, but it is out of the fridge, so it's cold. Yeah, and you
0: are in southern France, so it's like French I am. Water. very <laughs> Frenchy water very French water I mean I could
1: have done wine I maybe if I had planned a little better I should have had wine yeah and
0: it's like 91 degrees Fahrenheit so like you kind of need the water
1: yeah and I'm sorry there's a
0: motorbike outside that just passed and hopefully we won't I'm sorry I'm in such nice weather right now (laughs) 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 it's okay I'm not jealous at all it's fine it's totally cool (laughs) It's pretty nice here, I gotta say. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame you. Um, so yeah, I was gonna say before we dive into the questions, uh, we should probably start off this episode by stating, um, first of all, your research on Haredi, and I know I'm saying incorrectly, identity, is a huge topic. And when I started doing the research for this, I realized I could spend 20 years preparing for this one episode and just barely get the tip of the iceberg. Um, since the topic is so diverse, there's so many different types of Haredi communities. Identity is just a massive umbrella for a million different subsects underneath. So for the purposes of this episode, for our listeners, we decided to narrow it down to your research on the Haredi communities in New York, London, and Israel, which I'm now realizing is still very large. (laughs) So we will do our absolute best to break down a very complicated topic into teeny tiny more digestible pieces and um, if you have questions listeners you are also welcome to write us at any point and I will just direct you to Heather because she is a specialist so uh, if we could just before we dive in just to go in with the first question what got you interested in setting such a complicated subject focusing on the Haredi Jewish community Well.
1: That's pretty complicated, too. <laughs> um, to be honest, I went into my original master's project, actually, um, wanting to do a project on Christians in the United States. Uh, and that that turned out not to be very feasible for multiple reasons that are really boring. Um, so I was told by my supervisor at the time, well, hey, you know, you're Jewish. Why don't you do the Jews?
0: Um, <laughs> you have blonde hair. Why do you study blondes? Okay. <laughs> so I um, went
1: home for Passover and met my friends who um, have friends, and they gave me a connection with a Hasidic family in the greater Jerusalem area. Um, And I started with them, just one, one person, one name. Um, they invited me over to their house for the Sabbath. And, um, I guess I proved myself because after a million questions and, um, investigations into who I really was and who my family really was. Uh, they agreed to do an interview with me and they gave me another name of someone else to do an interview and the rest is history.
0: Wow. And I think it's really interesting that you kind of had to go through, and maybe we could tap into this a little bit, um, but you had to go almost through an interview process yourself as an interviewer. It's like, well, if you're going to talk to us and you kind of have to make these tick box, Can can I ask what sort of boxes you had to tick? Sure. Well, I mean,
1: Um, Haredi communities in general are sort of nervous about researchers um, or people asking questions from the outside because there's been a lot of people doing that who have an agenda or a bias or are trying to find dirt, especially if they're coming from a newspaper. Um, So there's a low level of trust there with the outside world in general anyways, too. Um, So I was asked about my Jewish identity um, and how I was raised as a Jew, how my mother was raised as a Jew, um, where our families were from, what I knew about Judaism and things like that, and also about my father, because he's not Jewish, um, and uh, my interests and why why I really wanted to be
0: doing this. Okay. yeah, it was it was intense. <laughs> yeah, but I think that that's something that's important to think about if if you're, a, you know, a researcher who's listening or a journalist who's listening, um, you know, one of the things that I know at least from my own experience doing research myself and interviewing people is that, you know, trust is like the most important thing when it comes to doing work and how you carry yourself, how you look, whether you like it or not. Uh, Your background is going to be a major determinative factor of whether or not they feel like they can, they see you as an equal. Um, And especially if you're talking about religion, politics, gender issues, you know, that that comes with the package. Uh, And you talked about all three. So that's that's the thing. I didn't mean to go looking for politics. but (laughs) Nobody ever does, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) So you used some terms. You said um, Haredi and you said Hasidic. Could you tell our listeners um, who are not familiar with Judaism at all, uh, what is the difference between the Hasidic community and the Haredi community and where are they within the spectrum of Judaism as a whole?
1: So um, the simple answer is the Haredi term. Um, First of all, it's a Hebrew word and it sort of means, not not directly, but it means those who tremble before God. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's used in Israel Um, to refer to the ultra-Orthodox. So that includes Hasidic groups, but it also includes other groups like um, people who might call themselves yeshivish or litvish, um, which is sort of a Yiddish way of saying um, Lithuanian, um, or people more derogatorily sometimes call them black hat, or even for, for as a joke, people call themselves black hat because they do wear black hats um, in, in the Litvish community. Um, but historically, the Litvish, also called Misnadish, and Hasidic communities were ideological enemies. Um, we're talking about three 400 years ago um, in Eastern Europe. So the Hasidic movement starts with this great rabbi called the Baal Shem Tov, the master of the good name. Um, and he was and evidently he was brilliant. He accessed high levels of, of learning, um, mystical texts at a very young age. Like I think he was 12 or something like that. And
0: he was a Kabbalah specialist, correct?
1: He was, he was reading the Kabbalah, but he was reading all of the Jewish texts. So the Kabbalah is just one of many, many different facets of this. You might, you might hear people talk about Gemara or Talmud, Mishnah, Hamish, Tanakh. These are all different types of Jewish religious texts and they're all studied and they all have commentaries and things like that. Um, And I'm not a Jewish studies person, so I I won't be able to help you. You still know more than me. Um, but it's, it's a wide breadth of learning. And, and so the Baal Shantov, um, basically starts his own program of study with his student and, um, teaches him all of his mystical insights. And then this student of his, who is called the Maggid of Meserich, which is a fun thing to say, mm. um, opens kind of a school for other people to learn with him and learn what the Baal Shem Tov is. Sorry for
0: the dog, by the way.
1: That's okay. <laughs>
0: Keep going.
1: <laughs> so he teaches the teachings of the Bal Shem Tov to a handful of students who have come to him from all over Eastern Europe. And each of these students go back to their hometowns and they start teaching the same things. and And each one, you know, has a slightly different interpretation. And these are the birth, the birth. It, this is the birth of, of all the different Hasidic groups. So you can't say Hasidic is one thing. Um, there are many different types of Hasidim, the plural of Hasid. Um, and each of these groups has its own flavor, its own interpretation. And they're led generation by generation of um by these great rabbis who have learned from the great rabbis before them Mm -hmm. so um and they're called the the names the of the Hasidic groups are from these original locations where that particular strain or interpretation of teachings came from in Eastern Europe so you have Lubavitchers who are from Labov and you have Breslovers who are from Breslov um not anymore I mean
0: now you don't. You have Berliners that are all stutter from Berlin as well.
1: So that's not a Hasidic group, as far as I know.
0: But uh, the concepts there, right? Like I'm getting the concept. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's a jelly donut. <laughs> yeah, I'm really looking forward to eating one later. Anyway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so so now you have the 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 head rabbi of each of these groups. Um, might live in New York or you might live in Jerusalem or um, in another part of Israel, like B'nai Barak. Um, but there might be communities that live near where he lives and also elsewhere like London or Montreal or um, New York City. So that's Hasidic is is this, these groups that have descended from the Baal Shem Tov, but all of them, plus all of the um, sort of Lithuanian, Litvish, Yeshivish, Misnagdish, Black Hat Jews um, who are descended from different uh, types of learning in Eastern Europe. And um, they were ideological opposites in uh, pre-Enlightenment Jewish life, and they're very much political allies now, and uh, all sort of live under this hat of of Haredi. And there's also non Ashkenazi. Uh,
0: here you go, sorry, <laughs> uh, Sorry,
1: it's okay. <laughs> so this is complicated. So Ashkenazi ref- refers to the Jews of Eastern Europe. Um. And
0: you're Ashkenazi, correct? I am Ashkenazi, yes.
1: Mm -hmm. So I descended from some sort of mixture of all these backgrounds, we think. Um, Not necessarily Hasidic or Litvish. um, Maybe different grandparents from different types of of learning. Um, There's also the Jews who are from Spain originally and ended up in parts of north africa and latin america um after being expelled by the spanish inquisition
0: is that the Sephardi? that's Sephardi. i got one right awesome
1: um and then there's this Mizrahi as well which are jews from anywhere else in the world there are jews from ethiopia there are jews from china india
0: See, that was interesting to me china i didn't realize it went that far <laughs>
1: All over the all over the Middle East, um, in fact, the Jews of China in Kaifeng, um, in the middle of China, um, have maintained an incredibly pure form of, of religious observance um, <sighs> that that has sort of direct links right back to two thousand years ago. It's really kind of cool.
0: Oh man, you know I'm going to go look them up later. And yeah.
1: some of these some of these groups of people, especially upon encountering their Eastern European counterparts in Israel, um, have started to live a life that looks a lot like these Ashkenazi, um, you see, these Eastern European traditions. Um, so they they also are Haredi, but they're not from Eastern Europe originally. Wow.
0: So if I could just step back, let's going step back, take a big old fat step back. Yep. Um, there's a lot there. Huh? There's a lot there. And this is the thing. When When I created these, the listeners don't know, like, every time I do an interview, I always send questions out in advance. And then I say, let me know, you know, if I said something silly or, you know, if it's going to come across the wrong way. And this is the first time I've had somebody go through every single question and go, yeah, you're going to need to reword it a little bit this way. Or you're going to need to, you know, because it was just so big. (laughs) No, don't be. Because it's, it's important, right? And so... Things that I would normally ask, like, what is so and so's perspective on X? It's not just one individual, it's like a multitude of individuals from a multitude of different communities. And so there's not, there's not, nothing that's black or white in the context of this topic, right. which made me re- fully appreciate how complicated it must have been and still is to do your research. And I would imagine somebody who was raised Jewish there was a lot that you had to learn or possibly unlearn based on your understanding of Judaism growing up. Would that be fair?
1: Yes. Well, it's interesting that you ask this because I didn't mention this when you asked me why I did the research I did, but um, another reason why I did it um, and why it was so, I wouldn't say it was easy, but why I had access when no one else has had access in a lot of ways um, was for a while I was horsey,
0: okay,
1: um, and I went to seminary, a, a post uh, high school uh, place of learning for. Isn't that just for women?
0: Young Jewish women,
1: okay, um, to learn. More. Now, the seminary I went to was targeted at people like me who who hadn't grown up necessarily with that level of religious education so that we could catch up.
0: Isn't there a term for that, for those that kind of become Haredi? There's like a, a movement afoot that started in the 70s. Is that correct? for, for Well, people who- yeah.
1: I mean, there's something called, so so people who become religious later in life are called Bal Shuba, which is Masters of Repentance. Um, and, um, I'm going to use that with a couple different forms. It's a Hebrew word. So when I conjugate it or decline it, I guess it's declension, not conjugation. Um, it's going to sound different if I'm talking about a woman or a man or a group of women or a group of men. Um, and so (laughs) just bear with me, but if you hear the word kind of like false, I'm talking about these people that became religious as adults. Um, and yeah, there was a significant number that sort of built in the seventies of people um, becoming bal Tshuva. But I would say that there have been Baal Tshuva for um, hundreds of years. Um, I think there are people who, um, I talk about in my dissertation as historical figures who would have counted as Baal Tshuva. Um, So it it, it did catch on sort of, I think, in conjunction with lots of the paradigm shifts that were happening for um, people in American cultures or cultures influenced by American culture in the 60s and 70s. Just like any of the other paradigm shifts of joining a commune or whatever, um, there were people seeking a paradigm shift. That had spiritual meaning, meaning to them, as Jews, and I think that's where a lot of it came in the seventies. But it's continuing through today. I mean, there's there's a steady steady stream of people who wish to become more religious and take mm. on more observance in their life.
0: Okay, so we have just to kind of reflect for those of you that have decided to take the notes during this episode. Um, you have the Haredi, the big umbrella. Sorry, Haredi. and then Haredi. Apologies. And that constitutes kind of a big umbrella of ultra-orthodox, shall we say. Sure. And Sure. I love how your answer I mean, to I everything have, is, is, yeah, all right. Of, <laughs> the thing about labels is like, everyone hates a label, right? Like, so nobody ever likes it, but we live in a culture where, whether we like it or not, labels help us within our the confines of our brains <laughs> to make sense of new information. So just hear me out. So we've got a big umbrella, let's call it Haredi. And within Haredi, we've got droplets. And we've got the Hasidic droplet, and then there is the um, Lithuanian droplet, and then there's a Hungarian droplet, and then there might be a various other droplets within that big sure. ultra-orthodox umbrella. Does that work?
1: That works. There's, there's. I mean, Hungarian usually is Hasidic, so that's part of the droplets of the Hasids. It okay, so each droplet has yeah. droplet babies. <laughs> Lots of droplet babies. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I mean, everybody has their own interpretation at some level, right? <laughs> so Yeah. But yeah, no. And then there's there's Shuba, which is under that umbrella. People who became um, religious as adults and joined maybe more of a Hasidic outlook or more of a Lithuanian outlook. Mm-hmm. But there's also Baal Teshuvah who are... Um, national religious, which is not Haredi. Um,
0: In Israel, that would be Datil-Uni instead of... Okay, and we'll get into that. We'll get into a little bit of that in a second. Um, But just to kind of give people a visual image, because when I was doing the research, again, I knew nothing. Nothing, 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 nothing. And I felt super stupid uh, doing this research. But then that's the point of learning, right? Is to realize you know nothing, and then that's how you keep learning. So when I was looking up the Hasidic community, the major visual picture for me were the sideburns, the really long sideburns and the hats that the men wore. And and then in doing more research about the Hasidic community and then how they ended up moving to Brooklyn after the Holocaust, what I didn't realize and look in doing the research was that um, 90% of the Hasidic community in Poland were extinguished by the Nazis And one of the major reasons they were pointed out was because of these sideburns. They visually stood out compared to other Jewish communities that may have been able to blend in or what have you. And interestingly, while it was thought that the Hasidic community was going to die out, actually they seem to be thriving and growing. And that there is this need, at least within those in Brooklyn, to preserve their traditions even more so in response to the Holocaust. And so there is this almost growing movement of foot that's been going on for decades. Um, and it just sort of speaks to this idea of like the Hasidic having a reputation of being quite insular, um, not necessarily communicating much with other members of secular society. And it sort of explained to me, at least the psyche behind it, at least initially from a historic perspective. Does that sound familiar? Does that, does that sound correct?
1: Sure. I mean, all of these um, Haredi groups, Hasidic or otherwise, um, felt that there was a real threat. Um, We're going back to before the Holocaust, now in the Enlightenment. So while, while the Enlightenment's happening in Europe, it's it's happening in in Jewish life too, and because
0: there was a Jewish Enlightenment, wasn't there?
1: Yes, the Haskalah, which literally means the Enlightenment, um, okay. and the Haskalah is is just like. The enlightenment of the rest of the world, it's, it's promoting um, these ideas of the rights of man and individuality. And this idea of the secular becomes a concept um, as a result of the enlightenment because there has to be some sort of conception of a self that's separate from the religious self. Um, when we get separation of church and state, you have to have an understanding of so what am I if I am not defined by my religion? Mm. Um, and so there is really this strong feeling in the um, Haredi world that we must resist this at all costs. It's very dangerous. It it gives birth to reform Judaism. Um, it's, it's considered an incredible threat.
0: And reform Judaism is a bit more secular. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so Reform Judaism, I think if I grew up in any form of Judaism, that's how I grew up. Um, it, I mean, I, I was sent to Sunday's Hebrew school on Sunday, um, so I could learn a little bit about my, my culture and religion. Um, I don't know that I was ever asked if I believed in God, um, mm. but I, there definitely there are people who are Reform who are very religious and very, very devout believers um it's just more of an of an integration of sort of modern world view with jewish tradition and holding it as a historical um piece of tradition Gosh. instead of something that that is perfectly relevant in the world today
0: mm. because i think that's something that i could never understand, and again, because I didn't grow up in this, about how you could be ethnically Jewish and non religious but then be ethnically Jewish and religious. For me, again, I'm, this is an Anglo-Christian perspective, so I realize I'm going to have my own biases and my own understandings, which are going to be limited. Um, and you did a really good job explaining to me about how um, the ethnicity element of being Jewish is breaking it down into those three groups, the Ashkenazi, the Sephardi, and the Mizrahi. Is that correct? And then within that, you have the heart, you know, if we're talking about the ultra Orthodox, you have the Haredi, the Hasidic, the et cetera, et cetera. And that you can be Ashkenazi and non-religious because ethnically you're still Jewish, but you could be Ashkenazi and religious. And, and to me, it's like I needed to see that separation in order to make sense of how ethnicity and religion can remain separate, but also the same.
1: Sure. Ashkenazi is just my ethnicity. Um, and, and, you know, I I look white. If you look at me, I look actually really really like hey, you're whiter than me. <laughs> I fit in in England really well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um but like yeah, I'm 50% Ashkenazi. Um, okay. And I spit into one of those little tubes once. Um, my okay. mom and dad did too. You know, and we sent it off to get our genetics. 23 and, and me? That's a good one. Yeah, 23 and me. That's mm-hmm. what we did. Um and you know, they they found my maternal DNA, that natural um, lineal connection all the way back, and and mine is the same as something like fifty percent of as of the Ashkenazi world. I share that little wow. piece of DNA with them, and it goes back to. They they have this whole interactive map thing. I don't know if you've ever done it, but like I
0: have, yeah. <laughs> it turns out I'm super white as well.
1: <laughs> no <laughs> surprise, super duper so, white. <laughs> so my dot took me all the way back to the area around Turkey. Oh, okay. Um, so that's where sort of the birthplace of Ashkenazi. It's Eastern European Jewry, but first people were living sort of in Eastern Turkey, and then they migrated. The area that is today Germany and gradually migrated from around the Ger- the area in Germany eastwards, um, at, as they were basically pushed east by by anti Jewish laws. And what you're saying about Poland losing ninety percent of its Jewish population um, in the Holocaust, you know they didn't identify people by payload they didn't need to the nazis were very organized and they could simply look at um sorry or the sideburns um they they didn't they could simply look at um family records and figure it out Mm -hmm. Uh, it was very hard to be not jewish even if you didn't think of yourself as jewish if you had jewish ethnicity in your background so in that way it's, it's it's very much an ethnicity and not necessarily a religion at all. Um, there's big, massive scholarly arguments about ethnicity and Judaism and whiteness in Judaism. And I am perfectly happy personally to say that I am white other on those, those um, British ethnicity forms, which mm-hmm. ask you to ask, tell them what kind of white person you are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I know quite a lot of Jews who are Ashkenazi and would not necessarily check the white box. Okay. Um, and I don't think there's any legitimate, you know, the, the, whatever choice you make, it's legitimate. I think um, there's huge scholarly debates over the whiteness of Jews.
0: Okay. Which sort of leads into the next question, Um, where in the world do the majority of Haredi or Hasidic, or basically, let's say Haredi in general, people live in the world? (laughs) Today. (laughs) Um, Today, (laughs) post-Holocaust. We'll we'll do
1: post-Holocaust. Yes, please, Um,
0: preferably, yes.
1: (laughs) So around the time of the Holocaust, I'll start with, um, there were some Haredi Jews living in the Holy Land, in what was at that point Mandate Palestine. There were some living in Brooklyn. There were some living in every corner of the globe, really, because also ultra-Orthodox Jews have always been involved in trade and things like that. So there were there were ultra-Orthodox people living in India and in China, as we discussed, and all over, but the vast majority at that point, at the Holocaust point, are living in either um, New York City area or Eastern Europe, Okay. Okay. Um, and some in Western Europe as well. Um, After the Holocaust, you have a massive population, uh, not just Haredi, of all Jews, from Europe, um, who are refugees, who don't really have anywhere to go home to, Um, within five days of the end of World War II, there is another massive pogrom, a a campaign to specifically kill Jews, um, perpetrated by some um, Polish people against some Jewish refugees who are trying to return to their homes. And so there's definitely a sense that you can't go home again. Uh, So some people uh, go to Israel, uh, the brand new state of Israel, because European Jewish refugees were given that as a significant option. Um, Some of them went to South Africa, Australia, some people had already been there trying to escape. Um, and then many, 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 many people went to the greater New York City
0: area and other places in Northern like North Curious York. Joel and Williamsburg, New York. Those are so areas. Curious Joel is. <laughs> Which I from... F, let me just say, uh, I wrote curious as in like, I genuinely am interested in information. <laughs> 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 I, well, that is not that kind of curious. <laughs> no, okay. I are. Curious Joel, what a curious guy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> curious Joel um, is a is a Hasidic village, um, a Satmar village. So that's a type of, of Hasidic group in upstate New York, but it was only founded in the 60s or 70s. That's okay. a little bit later. Okay. Um, so the big centers of population are in New York and Israel. There's also a fairly significant population in the UK concentrated in North London and in Manchester. Um, But honestly, the the history of Jews in the UK is is not Ashkenazi, it's more Sephardi, it's more Jews from Spain because Jewish settlements in England um, that were permitted after Jews were expelled from England, and I think it's 15 or 16, 20. It wasn't during
0: the time of Cromwell, didn't he expel the Jews? And they were just expelled for like 350 years. There were a lot years.
1: of people in England who spe- expelled the Jews. Yeah,
0: I mean, it wasn't like a first, I'm sure, but.
1: <laughs> um, so yeah, when Jews could settle, the Jews who settled in England were mainly merchants um, mm-hmm. from Spain uh, who settled in coastal areas. So there's like a really interesting historical synagogue in um, Southampton uh, and a few other places like that.
0: So if we could transition to something easy, and I'm going to put big, fat quotes around that, because <laughs> listeners, if you thought it's complicated, now, get out your pen and notebook. Um, the Haredi community in Israel. Now, I remember when you we and I talked about quite a bit uh, when you were starting work in Israel, you didn't plan to do work in Israel for your Ph.D., but Your main contact initially was in Israel and then before you knew it you'd opened up Pandora's box and you had said to me You were like, I'm not gonna do politics I'm not gonna do politics and then it turns out a lot of them lived on the border with Palestine and you're like dang it <laughs> politics here I come um I realized in talking to you. There's a lot of terminology. I didn't know um, This idea of being a Zionist. I didn't know I, I didn't know what that term meant and then you told me that some members of the Haredi community are non-Zionist, some are anti-Zionist, and I'm going to assume some possibly are Zionist. So could you tell us what it means to be a Zionist and then why some members are for or against or somewhere in the middle? I know there's a spectrum there. If you could just give us a, an idea of that.
1: Oy vey.
0: Oy vey. <laughs> okay um all right
1: i'll start easy not so easy um what 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 is a zionist a zionist is someone who believes in the um right of a a state for the jewish people um i will leave it at that there's degrees of zionism i mean some people would say oh zionists also support the occupation of the West Bank.
0: I think mm-hmm. I'm already
1: revealing some political bias even by calling it the op- occupation of the West Bank. Mm-hmm. Um, other people would say you can be a Zionist and be very against the occupation. Um, at the one extreme, you're saying, you could. You, other people could even say the entire existence of the state of Israel is an occupation. And, the, and at the the far extreme of that, um, uh, people who are people who say not only should should the land of Zion be between the sea and the Jordan River, it should extend to the Euphrates River. So I'm, I'm not going to even get into that, I am not a scholar of Zionism, um, but a Zionists will loosely just say, believe that there should be the existence of a state uh, for the Jewish people.
0: Okay. <laughs> that works, that works.
1: <laughs> Um, Now, in terms of Haredi views on Zionism, that is also a big old can of worms. Um, I
0: didn't mean for this to happen, by the way. Every question I thought, oh, this will be good. And then you're like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) Anne. Um, well, I just feel bad for the listeners because I feel like I'm I'm already overwhelmed. They must be really overwhelmed. That's okay. It's coffee and cocktails. They can drink at the same time. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I hear alcohol helps. <laughs> <laughs> so um
1: yeah, I mean, just to speak to um what you were saying about me trying not to get into politics and not not even do research in Israeli. Yeah when I when I first asked my friend for that name, I had hoped that they would give me the name of someone in New York City. Um, but no, they knew someone in Jerusalem. So I went tonight, I did that in Jerusalem. And I, I tried to keep it only in Jerusalem City for my master's. Um, but for the doctorate, you do have to go bigger a little bit. And um, then I also had a bit of a crisis because at the same time, um, as I was sort of diving into doctoral research, the ultra-orthodox community, the Haredi community of, of Israel, was was really in a massive housing crisis. They have been for about twenty years. It's a very small, narrow country, and they have a very, very high birth rate and a very large majority of them.
0: Now, do. if we when we say high birth rate, you're saying like up to seventeen children. I remember oh, yeah. you, you, and so I just want yeah. people to understand it's not like a family of five. We're talking like a lot of kids, a bus of kids.
1: Yeah, I think the <clears throat> average birth rate for ultra-Orthodox Jews in Israel at the moment is between seven and eight kids in a family. But that's average, right? So there are young families who haven't had all their kids yet. And then there's mm-hmm. older families who have had, who've had all their kids, but maybe the oldest ones are already married off.
0: And, then and having they're, their own kids
1: they're right exactly so it's big families and um yeah so i started doing research and realized that a, a good portion of the women i had already talked to had moved into areas that are um in the west Bank. we'll say i don't want to get into the the political um complexities of what that means but I think people will understand what I mean when I say in the West Bank, and so I I had to make a choice: do I do I do research out there or not? Um, it's it's certainly a lot more work to get approved for, by your university to do research out there. On the other hand, if I exclude that population, I'm possibly unfairly skewing my um, data. My data, yeah, it's, I'm going to have a really biased sample because I won't. Talk to probably at this point a third to half of the population. And so it was a real dilemma. It was also really confusing to me because I had thought of um, a significant part of of the Haredi community, the ultra-Orthodox community, as anti-Zionist. And what I mean by that is um, people who were against the idea of the creation of a Jewish state in the Holy Land um, and thought it shouldn't exist and actually kind of want to get rid of it. Um, And in the end, that's really only true of a very extreme part of of the Hasidic and Haredi community. Um, There are some very strong anti-Zionist views in parts of the Haredi world, even among people who live right there in in uh, Jerusalem, uh, and and they have these strongly anti-Zionist views because uh, their theological understanding is that it's the wrong order. Basically, the presence of an of a Jewish state in the Holy Land is preventing. Jews from getting a
0: Messiah,
1: mm. um, right? So Jesus Christ is the Messiah for, for Christians, but in the Jewish worldview, the Messiah hasn't come yet. Um, and so people are still waiting and a lot of people think maybe it will happen imminently. Um, and the fact that there is a state in Israel already maybe preventing it from happening because what it says and what they understand the text to say it's just it's not the right order um and so that's where the anti-zionism comes from but what my research revealed is that actually the vast majority of ultra-orthodox Jews in the world are not particularly anti-zionist they're more just sort of softly non-zionist it's it's like a spectrum so anti-zionism is one end and religious zionism maybe you could say is the other end um, where it's part of your religion so if you're a religious zionist you're going to say Hallel, you're going to say a prayer of praise on the israeli independence day so the people i studied haredi people the vast majority of them aren't going to say that. They're not going to combine their religion with their nationalism. But they may softly, not not strongly, but subtly be happy that there is the state of Israel, that it exists, that it offers protection for other Jews and for themselves. Mm. Um, They may be very keen to be good citizens. um, And that means voting, which the anti-Zionists won't do a lot of them um they'll vote they'll try and be a good citizen and participate and um, pay their taxes and things like that um and they'll they'll speak modern hebrew the language of the modern state of israel um they will they will speak modern hebrew and they'll learn modern hebrew the vast majority of ultra-orthodox jews Which the anti-Zionists will try not to do. It's that's very much um, a way of avoiding participating in the state-making project is by not speaking modern Hebrew. So they tend to speak Yiddish, Mm. but
0: not everyone who speaks Yiddish is not Zionist. Okay, (laughs) nothing simple, right? Okay, I mean, I I know I said this metaphor before, but again, trying to simplify it, I, I thought of math, the math equation of how you know, every rectangle is a square, but not every, square. But not, no, sorry. Every square is a rectangle, but not all, I don't know. So they were the rectangle, rectangles are well, squares. squares. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and even then I screwed it up. So there we go. <laughs> so basically
1: there's this giant spectrum of like anti zionism to like, even softly sort of being a little bit Zionistic, on um, in the Haredi world. And, and, One of one of the ways of sort of getting a temperature read on that is talking to people about army service. So army service is mandatory for everyone in Israel except the ultra orthodox. And this is a huge political flashpoint because the rest of the country is pretty pissed off that these people are having all these children and none of them have to
0: serve in the army.
1: Um, and that's really what what it looks like in, in the newspaper. Um, Almost
0: like favoritism, right? Because they're also getting housing benefits and those sorts of things.
1: Yeah, I mean, as I was saying before, the, the Haredi world in Israel has a very high rate of childhood poverty. Um, and so they do get quite a lot of housing benefits and other assistance from the state. So there is there's a little bit of a sense of why do we give these people a free ride? There's, there's, there's resentment there um from people outside of of the Haredi community and that's why actually Haredi is the chosen word by people maybe in New York and England that I've talked to because they kind of like it it's better to them than ultra-orthodox as a label Haredi but in Israel when I talk to people they're like oh I don't want to be called Haredi mm. it's
0: because almost like a stigma associated with it
1: yeah, yeah. In the news, it's those Haredim are ruining our country mm. over and over again. Um, there's, there's this book. Uh, it's getting a little dated now, but it's by um, Noah Ephron, and it's um, sort of about the anti-Semitism that's levied at um, Haredim by the other Jews of Israel, uh, and and the tropes that that of the anti. Haredi kind of media in in Israel, they they are very similar to old-fashioned tropes of anti-Semitic sort of cartoons that you would have seen in the 1920s and in Europe. Mm.
0: Well, so that gets, so if we talk about this sort of poverty aspect, um, one of the things I found really interesting, um, and, you know, I, I think it'd be good to dive into it a little bit, is that statistically speaking in Israel, at the very least, um, a good percentage of men? I mean, we're talking over forty percent. I would imagine maybe up to fifty percent of Haredi men are unemployed, and they are expected to go to yeshiva or religious schools instead of work. Can you explain to us the reason for that? It's because I, presumably the women are the ones working. Sure. While the men are in school, correct? sure
1: sure let me yeah simply yes but also no um, okay of get, course just,
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're wrong oh, okay i'm
1: so sorry It's just <laughs> sorry. Nothing's, easy. <laughs> nothing's easy um just to finish up the last thought because it'll connect well to this so Haredim generally don't participate in the army um but there are actually probably between five and 10% of Haredi families that are happy right now to be sending their sons to do army service. Um, And there are a number of people I spoke to over over research that said, actually, look, the politicians didn't approach us the right way. They tried to institute a draft about uh, five years ago now. The Haredi government tried to institute a draft for the Haredi population. And it really didn't go well. I mean, I've never seen protests of the scale that that, um, were taking place in Jerusalem after that bill passed. Um, It just, for miles and miles and miles, the streets were filled with with protesters, Um, And it's, it's because they just sort of pushed the bill through. No one in the leadership of the communities was approached and talked to about it. And I talked to women who work behind the scenes at some of the big ultra-Orthodox political parties. And they told me things like, look, if they'd come to us, if we talked about it, there would have been a way forward. Our rabbis understand the dilemma and would have created a system of quotas or something to send some of our young boys to help the army and to, to balance out the numbers a little bit but they didn't come talk to us. They did it because they wanted to use it against us because it was another political chip in the playing board. Um, so that was an interesting thing. And, and what, it, what was also interesting about it is that families are open to army service and army service is incredibly secularizing. It's, it teaches you all about the rest of the world and how other people live and you all have to live in the same way and um, get along with each other. Um, And and it's one of the big sort of socializing moments in in Israel. And when you grow up in Israel, um, it's how you become a part of Israeli society in a lot of ways. Um, And do with that what you will. I mean, some people Mm -hmm. think that's a really big problem and other people think that's great. Um, But that means there's this acceptance. There's this openness right now in certain parts of the Haredi world to having more of a conversation between non-Haredi and Haredi. And that's what I've been seeing a lot. So we'll go back, we'll backtrack a little bit um, to your question about um, men's education and women's education and, and people who works in the home and outside the home and things like that. So simply speaking, as of about, 10 to 15 years ago. Haredi men generally didn't work much in employment outside of the home or the community, I would say. Um, And women were the ones who were the main wage earners for Haredi families in Israel. That's a situation that got sort of blown to a great um, disproportion. I would say, as of about 2010, in, in 1950, we'll say, when we have a very young state of Israel. Um, most Haredi men went to study in a yeshiva, a, a place, a hall of learning where they studied Jewish texts together um, for about eight years, maybe less. Then they would go on and be, take on other jobs in their life. They might still do some learning, some studying of these texts, but they would also be having livelihoods. That's 1950. 2010, you have 90% of Haredi men or more, possibly like 92% studying full time in yeshiva in these halls of study without having other jobs and doing it for over 18 years after they turn 18. Meanwhile, women have been getting better secular education because they need to, because they need to make money um, for their families, which are growing, (laughs) growing rapidly, (laughs) um, with extremely high birth rates. Um, And whereas the rabbis before had said women shouldn't really go to university. That's too dangerous. You know, we don't want women getting ideas. People, people said that in the 19th century. By the, by the late 20th century, the rabbis are often sending um, women to university to special programs with their blessings. Um, and they're saying, um, yes, okay, you have finished having your children now. Go and get a degree in social work. And then come back and act as a counselor in our school system." Or, yes, you will go to business school and you can run a wedding business and you can make a lot of money for your family and for the community. And we, we need people like you. Things like that. Um. So by 2010, we had the highest rates of Haredi women going to get higher education. Now, it's not that high. It's still only about 30%. Um, But much higher than before. And... of Freudian women are in full-time employment. Whereas for men, it's dropped way down on full-time employment. I, I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but it's something like 12% of men are in full-time employment and the vast majority are spending much of their lives studying full-time in these halls of study. Why? What's the point? Do we just need a lot of religious scholars? That' why this is so important. But isn't it a
0: prestige thing as well? So
1: it's a prestige thing, for sure. Um, the the higher your level of learning, the, mo- the more respect you're going to have in the community. Gotcha. But that's because of what learning does for the world. So there's this idea of tikun olam, healing the world, and in Reform judaism how i grew up tikkun olam is being kind one another it's it's good relationships to other human beings it's picking up litter it's doing anything you can to do good things to the world it's healing the world in ultra-orthodox judaism of course it's also being a good person but the number one most important way in which to heal the world to gather back all the sparks of holiness that were lost when people were thrown out of the Garden of Eden to restore the world to the state of for the fall as you would say in Christianity is for men to learn religious texts it is only through learning these texts and through the study and through so many brains getting higher and higher levels of enlightenment and understanding that Messiah will come and the world will be redeemed.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And so it's the most important thing in the world that you can do. Okay. Now, as a scholar, sorry, do you want me to... Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. Okay.
1: Um, As a scholar, what I see is I see a group of people who are incredibly traumatized after the Holocaust. And learning has always been important, always been a good thing, important thing to learn. You throw a whole bunch of traumatized people who are refugees into a brand new country, and life in Israel is tough in the early 50s. It's really tough for the first couple of decades um, that Israel exists. Um, And also the the ultra-Orthodox are a very, very small minority. They feel very alone and no one else is religious. It's an incredibly non-religious country outside their communities. And you've lost the major teachers. All the people with that wisdom, with the knowledge to tell you how to do things right and how to find the balance and who you would go to to ask these questions. They're all dead. They've been murdered. There's no one to ask. And a lot of this stuff is oral. It's not written down. And so you have have this feeling of trying to do better and trying to restore and trying to go back and repair the damage um, that was done both by the Holocaust and by the Enlightenment, the secularization of the Jews. That's the mentality of the country. And so learning becomes such an important focus that it almost becomes out of proportion to to what's even healthy. And people I talk to agree and and say the same things now. They might not say it the way I'm saying it as a scholar, um, but they want to find more balance in their community now. Um, And so you get this increasing level of stringency of interpretation of how you should live a good Jewish life as a Haredi person, Haredi man. And it becomes the only option is to go to do Jewish learning and do it full time for your entire life. And it's made easier by political changes in the 70s with Menachem Begin and other things. But that that's not important. That's part of the process. It's because those political changes happen because it's what the Haredi community wanted. And um, so in 2010, you have this sort of crisis point where you have incredibly educated women who are out in the world, working in secular jobs. Some of them are doctors and lawyers and um, running businesses and and getting a lot of exposure to secular education. And you have men who have had less and less secular education um, and less and less secular exposure and more and more time in these religious schools um, with with their rabbinical teachers. Um, And you have a home crisis. You have women, new wives correcting their new husband's mass, but the husbands are being told that they're the head of the household when they're at yeshiva um, and things like that. So everything has shifted in the last 10 to 15 years. And now there's a lot more effort for men to go get degrees too, um, to have sort of more of a balanced life between learning and working for the men. Um, but even though the numbers of men getting higher degrees has increased, the the numbers of women getting higher degrees not decreased. So women are holding steady and still getting about about 30% of them are getting higher, higher degrees in Israel. But also now we're seeing 20% of men going for higher degrees and that's, it's constantly going up. So I, I don't know, Mm. um, and there's other issues related to that, but. But I'll, I'll leave it at that for now.
0: Okay. Well, I think what we'll do is we'll just narrow it down to two more questions. And I think those that are, are listening, you know, you can start to understand why um, this is a very in-depth topic. <laughs> and this is why we've broken it up into two parts. <laughs> so um, I do want to just interrupt you for one second to
1: say yeah. that that's Israel. And in New York and London, it's a slightly different story. It never got to that level of extreme. OK, um, so there have been more there's there's more of a balance, I think, in especially in what I saw in New York of men who work full time outside the home and their wives do, too, maybe. Um, but it's it definitely didn't get to quite the same extreme outside of Israel.
0: OK. So if we look at this idea of expectations, um, you know, the roles of men and women in the family, um, appropriate dress, education, employment expectations, which we've kind of dabbled into bits and bobs throughout this conversation. One of the things that I noticed in the research that I did uh, was this idea within the Haredi community of maintaining what they refer to as quote unquote status quo. (laughs) Um, I was, (laughs) and I realize I'm opening up Pandora's box again, uh, but could you tell us um, what is meant by this term and why is it so important within the Haredi community?
1: Well, I mean, that's a very good question because the perception of what the status quo is may be completely skewed, right? Like, um, people may talk about maintaining the status quo by, say, for instance, removing images of women. But in the 19th century or the 18th century, when they're hearkening back to this wonderful magical time that they're trying to sort of recreate, there there, there may not have been as much concern about images of women, um, which is a big topic in in the furry world today. Um, and I can get into that a little bit more later if you're interested. But um, I think it goes back to that question of, of what do we do to make sure we don't lose everything again? Um, and people in the community, especially in the Hasidic world, talk about the Enlightenment, the Haskala, and the Holocaust using the same word and they use the word korban it's a yiddish word and it's the word that used to be used for a burnt offering that was made in the temple korban so if you hear people talking about the korban it could be the holocaust or it could be the horrible loss of jewish observance as a result of Jewish enlightenment in, in the late 18th and 19th century. Um, and in a lot of ways, I think they view the enlightenment as almost worse than the Holocaust. And it's still such a danger, right? Um, this, the secularization of, of, of Jews and the loss of, of all those brains that could be learning Torah, in, in the study hall, um, or, or all the people who could be having families and, and making babies and creating, um, a, a better and bigger community. Um, so <laughs> when people talk about the status quo, I think they also talk about not wanting to rock the boat. And a lot of things that are viewed as dangerous change they're viewed as dangerous because they come from these outside secular influences but while all that is happening while while everyone's so afraid that the world in the ultra-orthodox community is getting so secularized there's so much that's happening that they're accepting and looking for and taking on that is sort of this combination of secular values and religious values. Um, and they're sort of melding the two together into this new sort of way of being ethically Haredi. Um, so, for instance, I'm trying to think of a, a straightforward example. <laughs> um, for instance, I, uh, I do a lot of field work at a dance school. And at this dance school um, it's all women and girls because for modest re- modesty reasons, you're not going to have mixed performances. You're not going to have mixed dancing ever. Um, and also you, you're not going to have a woman singing for an audience that might have men in it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So at this dance school, There are many dance schools in the Haredi world for girls and for women. It's it's a very popular after-school activity. Um, But this particular dance school has this real investment in modesty. So they're really careful that the girls are always dressed modest, that everybody always has their knees covered and the skirt on, um, and their, their collarbones covered and their elbows covered. Um, and when when dances are choreographed, nothing is too sort of um, sexy, shall we say? <laughs> um, and what they dance to uh, are religious pieces of music, like songs that are being sung, maybe by a woman, maybe by a man. Um, and the dance teachers would talk to me and. And they told me about their experiences working with their own dancers, but also going to schools. They do little workshops sometimes in the girls' schools. And they had girls telling them that they didn't really believe in God. They really believe in living a religious life. They, They just stayed in the religious world because it's where their community was, it's where their family was. But they had no connection to it. They felt really... What about religion and everything they do is religious, right? There's, there's a blessing that's set on everything you eat, that you say a blessing after you go to the bathroom, say a blessing when you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed at night and you say prayers three times a day, um, almost everything you do, sipping water, you say a blessing. So if you're not feeling that connection to it, it's, it becomes a very tedious experience. Um, and, The dance teachers would try and get them by dancing songs or dancing prayers or whatever to connect and to open up themselves to having some sort of religious experience. And so a girl who suddenly was unable to really say a prayer with any feeling can dance a prayer. And in in so many ways, that's the most secular thing. That's the most secular way of looking at it. Um, They also said they they had women who didn't know parts of their bodies. They couldn't name them. They would flinch if they they were touched on the shoulder or something as simple as that. Um, And the teachers were really worried about them having all these babies and not even knowing what's going on with them, basically. Um, And so... The teachers have these concerns that are very much rooted in um, things we understand about health and embodiment and psychology, Um, things that you learn sort of by going to get a degree at university, maybe in social work or maybe in psychology or something else. And they're combining this with values that are very religious. They want these girls to have a connection with God. They want them to know their bodies and trust their bodies because their bodies are vessels for giving birth to more Jewish lives and Jewish babies, and they're fulfilling a very important role. But they're combining these secular ideas with these religious values, and it's a completely different sort of culture and society than it was before they started doing it. Um, But these are really acceptable ways in which the secular sort of makes incursions into the religious in the Haredi world. And so this, this maintenance of the status quo is a bit false because it's honestly constantly changing. And everyone knows that and everyone talks about it and everyone's quite open to it. But it has to be the right kind of change. And sometimes these changes are are approach with great anxiety and nervousness maybe they only happen at the fringes but eventually they start to influence the mainstream parts of Haredi society and everything does change so maintaining the status quo has has no meaning in the end in that way but what it is a sign of is the anxiety about the loss of of religious observance or the loss of um, some sort of, you know, value of the purity of, of the culture and and religious life.
0: Okay. Which I think s- some aspects of what you say leads into our final question. Um, you talked about how there are some members of the Haredi community that don't feel God or they don't feel, you um, that they really fit in with the Haredi community or they might think differently or they might uh, feel like a sore thumb or whatever it is. Um, But that there seems to be this pervasive issue that it's quite difficult for those members who maybe feel conflicted to leave the Haredi community. And um, could you just dive in a little bit as to why that might be the case?
1: Sure. Um, So there's there's sort of a lot of media out there now about people who have left um and there's there's documentaries on netflix of varying quality um about this there's unorthodox uh the tel- the,
0: one of us uh, that was another one they right Jesus one, of, one of
1: us was um um a documentary of a couple years ago. And I think, I think it's incredibly sensitive actually. Although Mm. the unfortunate thing about one of us is that Netflix actually edited out um, part of one of the people's stories. Um, She's lesbian. And that was part of our, and I'm not even sure she identifies as lesbian anymore. I think she's, they are trans. Was Um, this
0: part of the footsteps group?
1: um, They, they, it was one of the three main people that they focused on. Well,
0: and I should probably mention that Footsteps is a community within in New York, in Brooklyn, correct? That helps those who are looking to leave the yes. community.
1: Footsteps yeah. is the organization for, to support people who are leaving the community. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a branch in New York. It has a branch in London and Manchester. Um, and I believe that there are similar fo- footsteps types per, type programs in
0: Israel as well. I don't and think they've been possible. targeted quite a bit by some some more conservative Haredi members right
1: Right because I think some Haredi people also view them as tempting people out of mm. the community. Um, and I don't I don't know how much uh, of that is true. I think I think they're main, mainly there to be a resource to people who are trying to leave. Um, the community makes it very difficult to leave. Um, in a lot of ways, some of it is is in, in very loving ways, just like any other sort of um, slightly close knit um, religious community. Why would you want to leave this? You know, um, everyone who loves you is here. Everyone who you've ever cared about is here. Um, people outside the community are, are dangerous. And you, you don't know if you can trust them um, because you don't know them. And and in some houses, you're told they're completely untrustworthy. Not in every Haredi house, but in some Haredi homes. um, And it depends on the group and on the family, but some, some families will completely cut you off if you leave. Um, other people who I know who have left go home every weekend for the Sabbath. Um, they don't talk about their life outside and their parents don't ask them, but their parents always want them home for Sabbath and they want to be there. Um, so it's <laughs> it, it all depends on the family, right? There's there's dysfunctional hmm. families and functional families in every community. Um, if you have a dysfunctional family, maybe you're going to be more likely to to want to leave uh, you could see that um, but uh, there are portions of some facility groups that will put every dollar that they have behind um, a legal team to make sure you never see your children again um, and if you've been having kids since you were 18 or 19 I mean it's very rare that that's when you figure out that you want to leave Mm-hmm. Um, it's usually when you're a bit older, um, so there are also people who want to leave and still live in the community and in, they, they talk about being in the closet as, um, off the derech, off the path, um, is sort of how it's called and, and that's problematic too because it's what's used by the community to describe those who leave. So it sounds very scary. Um, it's, it's very pejorative. Other people sort of take on off the derek as a badge of pride. Um, other people say, I'm just finding my own derech." Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's hard to leave people on. People will cut you out. You could lose your entire family. Um, sometimes. Not all the time. Um, I think sometimes it's it's simpler for people who are staying in because it's also one of those things where you you can ask questions, but you can't ask the wrong questions.
0: And I think Uh, you give that in any religious organization as well. I think it's worth mentioning.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, And there's also varying degrees of what leaving means. I mean, you could have been raised in a very, very Hasidic community, um, and you would still be considered leaving if you went and became sort of modern orthodox. So um, that might mean, you know, you still uh, try and keep certain laws, like you, you'll walk to synagogue on the Sabbath instead of driving. Um, and maybe you'll still try and wear a skirt. Um, but because you live a more modern, a more modernized life, then... Um, than your Hasidic family, they might still view you as being off the Derech, having left, but that might be more acceptable than, say, your sister who just transitioned her gender and um, is is not living in any religious way. And there's, there's not much room in the Haredi world for people who aren't straight or people who aren't cis. And that tends to be um, one of the major areas in which people have to leave sort of, if, if, if they realize, okay, I, I know I'm a lesbian or I know I'm gay, or I believe I am a man and I am stuck in a woman's body. Um, there's no space for you in the, in society, in the Hasidic world or the crazy world. And, um, So I think you get a significant amount of LGBT people who leave, but you also get straight, cis people who leave um, for various reasons. Mm. Um, And yeah, and some families make it work and some families don't.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope for the listeners, I know this has been a really big episode but hold on to your butts. There's a part two. Um, I hope it gives people sort of an idea um, before we dive into the more controversial aspects of the anti-vax movement in the next episode um, of what it means to have Haredi identity and that it is not something that you can put into a box. As much as I tried, I failed, Um, but that uh, you really do need to understand even just the tiniest bits of the complex elements involved within that in order to understand what we'll be talking about in the next episode, which we'll be looking at the response to um, vaccines in general, especially with COVID-19. So with that, I have to say that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank Dr. Heather Monroe again for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. My head hurts, but I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> um, <laughs> My head hurts a little bit too, to be honest. <laughs> that's okay. Um, additional information on today's topic, and we'll be you know we'll be available on our website in the show notes. We'll give um, you know uh, Heather's made a whole list of books that you can look at, uh, films and documentaries you can consider i'll make that i'll put the whole list up so that if you want to learn more uh it'll be readily available for you and if you enjoyed this episode please make sure to check out part two on the anti-vax movement amongst the Haredi community of new york which will be available later uh this month on our patreon page starting at one pound per month patrons get access to extra bonus content patron only interviews panels workshops and much more to join just head over to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast otherwise that's it for now thanks for listening and have a great week